So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise God made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much that we are here this morning again with your people. You are good. God, and you are good all the time. Uh, Help us to grasp that in our hearts each day, each morning, to know that your mercies are new every morning. Uh, God, there's many people on our prayer list who are suffering with illnesses and cancers, and we ask that you would uh, bring those new mercies to them, that they would feel your love and your spirit around them. We thank you, God, that uh, you are love us and that you sent your son to die in our place. We know that all of our righteousness, uh, all of our acts of, uh, of good things that we do and worship are not capable of satisfying your righteousness, but we know that Christ's death and resurrection does satisfy that. And so we thank you, God, for that. This morning, I pray for Pastor Jay that as he brings your word, uh, you would open our hearts and our minds, and that we would be drawn to love you more and see you more glorious, and that our hearts would be changed by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Church attendance continues to decline in USA. How many have uh, seen headlines along those lines? So-and-so deconstructs from the Christian faith. Fewer, I, fewer people identify as Christians in 2023, or whatever the case may be. You'll see headlines. Have, have any of you ever seen any of those kinds of headlines, by the way? Or am I the only one that pays too much attention to the news? Yeah. Don't let yourself be disheartened uh, by that. The kingdom of Christ is advancing. It is advancing throughout the world. It has been advancing since the very day of Pentecost. The book of Acts, if you'll recall, kind of going way back to the beginning, how the book begins, how it ends, all the points in between. It's all really a history of the advancement of the kingdom of God throughout the world. And we know how does it advance not by treaties signed by nations or any such thing. It happens by individual people coming to Christ, Christ taking up residence in their life. He gains ground that way. They continue to share. Churches are planted and so on and so forth. So don't be disheartened. The advance is under the radar. The advance of the kingdom is under the radar. Consider a parable that Jesus told. We all know the the parable of the sower of the seeds, and there's a number of parables about the seed. This is a different one, less familiar perhaps. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So far it's familiar, right? He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. Sounds like Kansas. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Which kind of reminds you of a Thanksgiving hymn, too, if, if, you, uh, if you know that one. Christ's kingdom is advancing under the radar. We get to be part of that. That's why I say I don't want you to be discouraged. I think getting a hold of just this premise, if we really see things as they are, then we're going to be less likely to be in some way uh, destabilized when we see headlines like that. It really doesn't, it matters, but it doesn't matter in some respects, if you will. Okay, first of all, the world in its pride cannot understand it. And apparently Microsoft Word cannot see when I uh, write a typo like cannot not. I'm not being clever. It was a typo that just got missed if you're looking in your bulletin. Um, Yes, a strike through that one not. It's just one it's just one not, not twos. So the world in its pride cannot understand up, stand it. Uh, we pick up in Acts where we left off before Advent. Paul is at Caesarea. Felix now, the, as governor, has been replaced by another one of those guys with the first initial of F. So things, it's, it's really hard at sometimes to keep things straight because names are so similar and, and, and yet there's different stuff going on. Uh, you have King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa and his sister Bernice in for a visit. It is early still in the time that Festus has been there, so he's looking for help from Agrippa. Recall who we're talking about when we talk about Herod Agrippa. How many uh, at some point memorized the whole Herodian dynasty and line and all, all, all of that in seminary or something? Anybody? No? Okay. Neither, neither have I. I find it really hard at times to keep one Herod, uh, you know, and this is, this is after 30-some years of ministry and preaching. It's still hard to keep them separate. Uh, but you all remember the first Herod that we, that we meet at Christ's birth. That was Herod the Great, you know, 
and great because he, he was sort of the, 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 the big guy in all of that. And then it got, and it got dispersed with a bunch of other people also named Herod. Then you had Herod Agrippa I. He was the one that had James put to death, that put Peter in prison, that ended up eating, being eaten by worms. Yeah, that's the brief bio on him. That's this guy's father now. <laughs> so uh, this, this one, he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He no longer is ruling over the entire area of ancient Israel as was his great-grandfather. In fact, it's a rather petty kingdom that he's left with. Uh, this, is really, this is winding down when it comes to the Herods at this point. However, um, he was the custodian, not like uh, he didn't have to clean it, but he was, that was sort of his a title, like he was the custodian of the temple. So even though he had like this smaller, you know, unimportant kingdom to the north, he had the jurisdiction over the temple. And he had all of that history. He had all that family history. He, had, he knew the politic of the day. He was, yeah, he was really, so he was the perfect person for Festus to bring in. Festus wants to ingratiate himself, show that he can work together side by side. But he also knows this guy, he can give me real insight. Um, yeah, interesting, interesting Herod, the, uh, this, this particular Herod, Herod Agrippa II, uh, was also a practicing Jew which was not true of all the Herodians. They'd always made some sort of a semblance of, yeah, we're sort of, we're sort of Jewish. They weren't. They were really Idumean. But he at least made some pretense of actually uh, being in, engaged in, in the following of Judaism. So in Acts 25, 23, Agrippa and Bernice come into the audience hall as royalty. And I, I'm sure you picked up on it when Ryan was reading this. They come in, you know, and you can picture the, you know, and everyone's standing up, and the, the, the tribunes and the, you know, all the soldiers and the mighty men of the city. It's like just, it's just this huge, huge regalia. And, and it's, almost, it's kind of like Luke's almost setting up a boxing match or something, you know? It's almost reading, the way Luke has it read, it's almost like, and in this corner... We have the world, the world in all its pomp and, and, and all of its vain glory. And look, oh, how they're, how they're preening and prancing and, and, and strutting their stuff. Here's the world. Over in this corner, we have this little guy, Paul. Poor Paul. Just, just standing there in shackles. That's kind of the David and Goliath kind of a thing that's being set up here. Festus addresses Agrippa. Lays out a quick, you know, reading of the facts the Jewish leaders have accused Paul of of some heinous crime Festus doesn't get it he doesn't understand what's really the big deal here he's listened to Paul he doesn't see that there's really anything the guy should suffer for but you know rather than go back to Jerusalem you'll remember that Paul said well I appeal to Caesar now Festus is obligated so he's got to send him but he's thinking, what do I, what do I say to, to, you know, you don't want to send him to the emperor going, hey, here's a guy that's not guilty of anything. That doesn't really work. You need to say, well, here's what the charges are. And he's trying to, trying to get Agrippa to help him. Rome can still not make sense of Christ. Rome can still not, the world, Rome, in this case, cannot make sense of who Jesus is. Look at Pilate. 20, this is like roughly 25 years after Pilate sentenced Jesus to death. And you remember when he did it, it was kind of like, i got to wash my hands of this because I don't know why I'm sending this guy you know, to be crucified, but you want it, and, and so I'll let you do it. But he doesn't, he doesn't grasp it. And here it's the exact same thing. Festus is just as clueless as was Pilate. The world doesn't get it. 
the world doesn't get it. And if you think I'm kind of generalizing a very minor portion of the text here, I want to recall to your mind something that that Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, none of the rulers of this age understood this. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. How many remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Anybody ever see that about Eric Little, the great Scottish flyer who ran with his head back and yeah, went to the Olympics? He was a practicing conservative Presbyterian. And I don't know if you know anything about the Presbyterians, but back in the day, especially you know, in places like Scotland, they really didn't do stuff on Sunday. Uh, the Christian Sabbath to them was, was utterly holy and you didn't play sports, you didn't, you know. So it was, you, you remember the whole crux of it was they were going to make him compete on Sunday and he's like, I can't do that. And I remember that one scene, I think they were aboard the ship and they're surrounding him and they're like, dude, you do this for the king and country. You, you, the, the, how dare you? How dare you even think about putting your God ahead of your country? They couldn't grasp it. And that's always true of the world. The world doesn't understand. Here's the thing, though. Though they cannot, in one sense, understand because it's spiritually discerned, there is always the chance, because they understand words. (laughs) It's not like we're speaking a different language. They understand words. There is always a chance that in speaking and in them listening, that the work of the Holy Spirit will take place in their life and the coin will drop and they will understand. And so Paul goes at this. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, which he was. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. What is Paul saying there with those last words? I beg you to listen to me patiently. Well, in one sense, it's a throwaway. It's not that. But, but, but what Paul is saying here, I think when you put it all together as a whole, is he's saying, I'm going to tell you, and I have the hope that though you are part of this huge power structure, and, and though you already think you're up here and I'm down here, I'm, I'm going to talk to you in a way because you're a human being and, and you understand language and you understand some of the background and the pieces and the, and the Jewish faith. I'm going to talk to you and try to convince you of, of, of the way of the cross, of the way of the gospel. Though the world is in darkness and we understand that, we still talk, don't we? We're, we're still to communicate. Do you see what I'm trying to set up there? That on the one hand, realistically, yes, we need to know that the world does not grasp the gospel. It doesn't understand. It doesn't know where to stick us. It doesn't know like what sense we're, like, like it sounds like we're talking gibberish on the one hand. Yet, ironically, it is only through talking and speaking and using words that God, normally, apart from, from you know, special circumstances, that God, only God can, you know, God can use dreams, I'm sure, and whatnot. We hear people coming to faith. But the Bible says faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God. Not through a loudspeaker necessarily, or, or it could, or through the internet, it could. But generally, it's through you and me talking. Yeah? Okay, so they can't understand on the one hand. Until God makes it clear, but he's going to make it clear in the context of these things moving. Got it? All right. Not my things, your things. I might not. Yeah. All right. Secondly, we in humility must still tell the story. 
By now we know Paul's story really well, but look at the pieces of the story that he ends up sharing. We would call this, do you know what we would call this? A personal testimony. A personal testimony. Uh, it's not so much an attempt to persuade with, with reason and logic or philosophy. Yes, those things might come into it. It's not just logic or rhetoric. A personal testimony is a story. It's the story of how you came to Christ. It's the story of, of how that all, all happened and came together. This is one of the best of all times. You know, like None of us probably have as good a testimony. If you have a better testimony than Paul's, I do want to hear it, so share that with me. Uh, after the fact, I can say mine's not nearly as good as this. Um, just pound for pound. But we all have a story. And the story usually begins with B.C., J, B, C, Sally, B, C, George, B, C, whatever the case might be. Here's Paul's B, C. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known to all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So Paul's life for them is an open book. They know him. They have known him for Longer than 25 years that Paul's been a, uh, roughly 25 years that Paul's been a Christian, close to, you know, and before. They knew him before he ever came to Christ. They knew that he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. They knew his family. <laughs> Remember, back when he was being uh, whisked out of Jerusalem, that there was a nephew we'd never heard of, a sister. So his family had come to Jerusalem. He had studied. He was a brilliant man. That's one thing you can definitely say about Paul is he was just bloody brilliant. And he, and he was raised in strict Pharisee, uh, Phariseeism and had Gamaliel, one of the, still to this day, a known rabbi of the day that is still one of the most famous of all. And he studied under him. This is how Paul can then say or write to the Philippians that he was a Jew of Jews. He was Jackie Mason. He was super Jew. He was like, he was extraordinary. He was the nth degree. He was Hebrew of Hebrews. If Paul had been a food product, stick with me now. Like, that's a dumb analogy. He would have had that little U inside the O stamped on him. You know, the one that says you can buy this because it's kosher. Paul, like, if he'd had a tattoo, which isn't kosher, by the way. You can't, it's not allowed. Uh, but if he'd had one, that's what it would have been. It would have been that kosher symbol. I'm just convinced of it because he, he was absolutely 100% orthodox, certified, bona fide kosher on every point. He was mainstream Judaism. He was orthodox. There was nothing they could say. None of his accusers could say, well, you know, Paul was part of that Essenian uh, group outside of Jerusalem. You know the ones out there in the Dead, the Dead Sea caves there, writing their little scrolls and leaving them in pots? He wasn't a weirdo. He wasn't part of that kind of a contingency. He was just mainstream. And then Paul addresses the real issue, which is not that he might have brought Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple. That was a baseless charge. They had just put that together to come up with something. It wasn't that. Paul gets to it. It hinged on that ancient conviction of every Pharisee and every good Jew in Paul's mind. Yes, there were the Sadducees who denied it, but every Orthodox, good, mainstream Pharisee and other you know, real religious Jews would have believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that God 
at the end of the age would, would bring back the dead and that he would judge between the good and the evil, that he judged men according to their deeds. That was just a, a basic part of their belief system. Now, why does Paul think this is the crux of the matter? Well, he doesn't bring up the name of Jesus at this point. But I think what he's doing is, I think he's planting seeds here for Agrippa. Remember, Agrippa has studied Judaism. He, he adheres to Judaism on some level. And, uh, and I think, and he, of course, he knows the history of all this. His family was intimately involved in what happened to Jesus, you know, back, back 25 years previous to that. And so I think he's trying to, to, to give little, you know, little dots of the connected dots so, so that Agrippa will come to it kind of almost on his own naturally. Like, he, why is he talking about the resurrection? Yeah, all Jews believe in the resurrection. All real good Jews believe in the resurrection. That's sort of what Paul's saying. But he's getting at the resurrection of Jesus. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to, by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any, by any of you that God raises the dead? He drops in this really tantalizing little rhetorical question. And earlier I said that what he's going to share is not a, a, a sustained logical argument or a philosophical argument. It's a story that he's telling. And yet here he is really resorting right to something very, very plain and, and logical. Here's the logic. If you believe in God, which everyone present in that situation believed in God or gods, um, Agrippa believed in the God. The Jews that were accusing Paul believed in God. So the logic is this. If you believe in God, who created the universe, who called the universe into existence by his word, yea, who is going to raise the dead anyway, you all say that, you all say you believe in it, then if all that be true, here's the logic, are you, are you following? Then why is it something amazing that he would raise his son Jesus from the dead? That's the implication. There, there, there's nothing weird or strange in setting up this story. Paul is demonstrating that, that, that everything that he believes in is absolutely orthodox. He's not a weirdo. Understand that in some of the subtexts of what they were accusing him of, they were kind of going, weirdo, right? <laughs> right? Wink, wink. Like, this guy, this guy is a crazy man. Like, what, what he's saying, what he's maintaining. And Paul's like, no, this is... This is I am as mainstream, biblical, traditional as you possibly could be. Now Paul comes back to his bio. We're back to the, the testimony thing. So B.C. pre-conversion, Paul was a rabid persecutor of the church. That was known to all. He outdid his countrymen in that. And I know we've covered this at several points along the way, so I'm not going to go into you know, a lot of detail there because he's repeating what we already know, which is that he was just like an animal in his anger and hostility to the church. He says, and I did, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
So when you hear Paul's pre-conversion story, his zeal against Christ, we're forced to ask this question. How could anyone that far gone do a 180 and end up becoming a Christian? Do you realize that next to the resurrection, this is the most persuasive apologetic from the New Testament in defense of Christianity? Like, number one, it's the empty tomb. Make no mistake, that's... If, if we're going with evidentiary uh, apologetic, understand that's number one, the empty tomb. But right next to it, very, very powerful, is Paul, <laughs> Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul. How did that happen? You go, know, well, Pastor Jay, people change all the time. We see it every day. You get a radically rabid leftist that's a, you know, a, a Democrat, and then overnight something seems to happen, and then they're, then they're a right-wing Republican or whatever, they, or, or, or back the other direction. We, we, we see things like that. So you're like, well, that's not that impossible. This is, this is far more extreme than that, you understand. This would be like if Hitler in 1942 had had a dream and then gotten up the next day and said, hey, everybody, the war's over. Yep. Let the Jews out of the concentration camps. I've had a second uh, change of heart, and uh, let's just pull back, and we'll all be friends. That's what this is like. That, that, is, that is the sort of, of radical change that took place in Paul. We aren't Paul. We aren't Paul. None of us quite have that, that kind of a, a testimony. Few of us are that dramatic in, in, um, in, in our, uh, our testimonies, yet... Yet there should be part of our testimony where we explain how it was that by God's grace we came to this, to this new understanding. We're witnessing to people who are lost sinners and we want them to understand, hey, I was right there with you. I wasn't a candidate for salvation I wasn't in myself naturally just inclined to love God and love all things about Jesus and, 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 and just bend the knee to him. I wasn't in that same, uh, in, in any different place actually than you are. There was nothing in me that made me suited for it. Then Paul shares the events surrounding his conversion, which is the third time we've heard his conversion or read his conversion in the book of Acts. He had Acts chapter 9, the original, where, G, where Paul comes to Christ. Then, just a few chapters ago, in, in chapter 22, do you remember that one, where, where he was about to get beaten to death, and the Roman soldiers carry him up, on t- you know, up, the, up to the platform at the top of the stairs, going into the fortress Antonio, and he, he begs for a chance to share with the Jewish people, and he tells his testimony there. This is now the third time that he goes into that. Um, Paul mentions that Jesus spoke to him here in Hebrew. This is the only place where Paul says that of the three times. Why do you think that is? I know this is not that central to the whole story, but I just thought I would mention it. He's now talking to a group of mostly Gentiles. Like you have the prominent men of the city, you have the military, you have Felix. Um, you know, even Agrippa might have been more comfortable speaking in Greek. And so Paul's speaking now for the first time. He's telling his testimony. He's giving it to us in, in, in Greek. He's speaking to them in that. And so it, it's, it's sort of a point of clarification, which is helpful as we go through, as the Bible gets translated in other languages, the church goes into other cultures. We always should come back to the fact, uh, by the way, Jesus was Jewish. Don't know if you caught that or not, but we can't make Jesus Gumby. Jesus was not an American. 
The kingdom of God is not uh, you know, focused on the United States. Jesus was a Jew. He spoke Hebrew. When he spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, he spoke in Hebrew. I love the fact also that in all three accounts, he never leaves out this particular sentence. You know, there's a li- he gives us little variations for various reasons according to the setting. But he always includes uh, the words of Jesus, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. A huge key factor in Paul's testimony is coming to the awareness of, of his sin. Paul was not this, you know, innocent individual who just one day believed Jewish things and then the next day believed Christian things. That's not what it was. Paul was rabidly anti-Christ. He was, he was as much a persecutor of Jesus as those who nailed him to the cross. Seeing our sin within our testimony is an important critical part. People, when they hear our testimony, they have to hear that, that we understand that we were under God's wrath. We were sinners. We were apart from God. We deserved the wrath of God. It may not be the part that we tend to think about as critical to our testimony, but as you, you know, they even teach sometimes people, like, here's the pieces of a testimony and try to arrange the material. And that may seem fraudulent almost, like, well, why should I arrange this in a particular way? Well, there are key things that you want to share with someone. Who were you before? How, how far from Christ were you? What kind of a sinner were you? Were you aware of it? Did you come to an awareness of your sins? Because repentance and faith have to include the fact that at some point you understood that you were a sinner. What's interesting to me here in the account uh, is that Paul, for the first time, says this. Um, see if you can pick out the new part the, out of three times, this is the first time we'll hear it. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Hard for you to kick against the goads. How many have no clue what that means? Yeah, honestly? Yeah, right. Or if you like the old King James Version or the Johnny Cash song, When the Man Comes Around, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, right? Um, the prick or the goad was a long, sharp stick. <laughs> it could sometimes be mounted to the implement that you were using the oxen to plow the field with, but uh, otherwise it was just the guy behind the oxen with a sharp stick. That was the goad. And he, if, if, the, if the oxen wasn't doing what the oxen was supposed to do, which was to plow the field, give him a good jab. And if, and if the oxen didn't want to cooperate uh, and push back against it, it was going to hurt the ox even more. Do you see, you see the analogy that's going on? He was revealing to them the turmoil that even as he was a persecutor of the church, that his soul was distraught. He, he tried so hard to destroy the, the people of Christ. He pursued them you know, to foreign cities. He tried to get them to blaspheme. He, he persecuted them. He gave his vote against them when they were being condemned to death. But the further he pursued them, and the more often probably he heard them give their testimony, their simple faith in Christ, the bravery that, that, that they had in, in facing uh, punishment, it, just, it was just almost impossible for him inside. Don't you think that uh, Agrippa had probably already had run-ins with, uh, with people, with Christians? Don't you think he had probably heard powerful testimonies? I think that what Paul's doing here is trying to relate to Agrippa. 
by telling them what was going on internally in him. When he says, Jesus said to me, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He's, he's, he's I think, laying it out there for a grip. Like, hey man, don't you find it hard? That you've heard Christians, these simple people, these simple uneducated people come before you in chains and, and, and they continue to profess faith. And now you're sitting here and here I am in chains and you're hearing my testimony. But, but the resistance to that, the resistance to that is so hard to keep going. I recently watched a movie about C.S. Lewis. How many have heard the, uh, or seen The Most Reluctant Convert? I think Casey, you have. Came out last year. You, there have been a lot of movies about C.S. Lewis. For those who don't know, C.S. Lewis was a very famous uh, English writer, uh, um, scholar, and uh, is from the last century, and, and he was an atheist when he started out. He was a very, very vehement, uh, vocal atheist. And yet what happened to him is, is very similar to the Apostle Paul. He, could, he couldn't keep kicking against the goads. When you share your faith, it's not wrong for you to share your struggles, the, the struggles you had. I love the fact that in the movie that we, that we watched about Lewis, that it started out, and I thought, well, this is weird when it, when it started, but it made sense later. It started like, he's like, well, you know, back when I was an atheist, here's what I believed. And for a portion of the film, at the beginning of the film, he's making a persuasive argument why you should not believe in God. You know, so he's kind of like, here's what I would have said. And he makes the case for, for atheism first. But then he starts talking about his struggle to keep that going. For years, he kept trying to hold on to his atheism. He clung to it, you know, like it was something precious. But then he kept having that battered and beaten. And, he, and, 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 and bit by bit, piece by piece, it all like just, it just crumbled like a, a house of sand. So when you share your testimony, tell them your struggle. They're, they can track that. I think Agrippa would have been tracking with Paul at this point. Yeah, this is hard. This, this, this thing about this resurrected Savior and, and the way it affects people's lives, it is hard to push back against that. Now, ideally, I would have gotten a lot further today um, in my preparation. Not only did I have my typo, but um, I just didn't get as far as I wanted to. So anyway... We're going to pick it up next week from this same point. But let me bring it back to where we began. For us, when we read this story, on the one hand, it's like history, which it is, right? <laughs> it is a history. And it is a history of the advancement of the kingdom of God. And it's worthwhile just in itself just to observe it. But think about this for a second. You know, in, in modern times, how long does the so-called news cycle last like, what, the, the, what's been the most recent thing in the news cycle? Which, a week from now, if I ask you, what was it two weeks ago, you won't remember. Uh, it was the whole thing of who's going to be the Speaker of the House. I can guarantee you, uh, two weeks from now, nobody's going to remember that that was even a thing. And I kind of put it in the context of what's going on here. Paul's trial at Caesarea, it was big, it was a big deal at that moment. Like we said, there was all these prominent people there, and, and it was a big to-do, and, and it was a big moment, but then the next day, life went on. And what do you think happened from it? Did the Roman Empire surrender the next day? We would just like to publicly apologize to all Christians. We had it wrong. <laughs> yep, yep, Paul's convinced us. We're... We're all becoming Christians now. It's not what happened. 
<laughs> that's not what happened. In fact, within a few years, persecution is just going to break out in full earnest under, un, under Nero. Today, Christ is still being persecuted. His kingdom is still advancing. But it happens in that same kind of way. It happens imperceptibly. You've got the noisy static of the modern world trying to distract us. Apostasies happen. It disheartens us. News of persecution in other countries where Christians are are just, you know, in some cases whole villages wiped out and we read that and, and we can be so disheartened. And yet the truth of the matter is the gospel of the kingdom is going forth. And advancing in the world, it is like water wearing away the stone. That, that is how it happens. A man goes out and sows seed in the field. He goes to bed. He sleeps. It starts to sprout. He knows not how. That's the kingdom. What happened to players like Festus? A couple years later, he died unexpectedly. What happened to Agrippa? He clung to power through the fall of Jerusalem beyond, but he was the end of the dynasty. It all came to end with him. You think about the Jewish leaders, if there were any of the Jewish leaders there, and I don't know that there were, but, but man, 70 AD, Jerusalem destroyed, Judaism set back, the temple destroyed, and so on and so forth. The Roman Empire collapses within a couple centuries. The gods of the Romans are forgotten in light of the gospel. What do we do against such great powers that seem to stand against us? We trust his kingdom. We trust him. We trust that the kingdom is continuing to grow. The world, the world is in darkness. The world doesn't understand it. It doesn't, it do, the coin doesn't drop. The elevator doesn't go all the way to the bottom, however you want to say it. But one thing they do understand, they understand words and sentences and human experience. And so we speak. We share. As Christians, we keep sharing. We share our story. We share his story. We share the gospel. That all those that hear may have the opportunity to respond in faith to Christ. If you're not a believer today in Christ, perhaps, uh, could I just say it's possible that you are kicking against the goads. And that up till today, maybe you never knew what a goad was, but now you do. Now you do. It is hard. Maybe you're like C.S. Lewis and and you're just a proud atheist and yet over time, bit by bit, like water dripping on the hard stone, it's been wearing away. And I just want to suggest to you today that that you can give up. You can give up on that if you like. You can let go. You can give up the atheism thing. You can surrender to Jesus Christ. See, See your sin. See your sin against the Savior. See your sin against the Lord and confess it and turn and believe in him and you'll be saved. And you will be then part of that kingdom, that, that mighty kingdom that's advancing just through simple, simple people. It's advancing through the world from then up until the present day and, and until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for um, Paul's bravery as he stood there before such a huge group of, of people of this world and gave his defense. And we pray, Lord, that we might have a similar uh, level of, of commitment and a heart for it and a confidence in it. 
Lord, it's not about us. It's not really in one sense about us, though, though we get to be players. We, um, we have our stories. We have our story of, of what you've done in our life. So, Lord, even though the world is resistant, even though the world lies in darkness, help us, Lord, to, to trust in you, to trust in your kingdom advance, and just deliver the message to anyone that will listen to us. Help us to just keep putting one word after another, telling the gospel, telling this story, and Lord, we will trust you to do the work. We know not how. We sow the seed, it grows, the kingdom advances, and and we give you thanks. We pray even today that there might be uh, one, one person expanding that kingdom by coming to faith in you. Um, Lord, may you do that work. We ask you to, in Jesus' name, amen.